0: Hello, thank you for downloading this episode of The Final Third. We have an amazing, amazing show for you guys today. We talk all about the USMNT Olympic qualifying, how that's going, how they can improve, what's the likelihood that they're going to qualify for the Olympics. We also talk about the Champions League quarterfinals being set, which matchups we are most excited for, and we also talk about some some news from all around the world and here in America, so you don't want to miss out. As always, give us a rating, follow us wherever you listen to us, whether that's Podcast Addicts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever. It means so much that you guys are you know, engaging with us there, whether it's a rating or a follow. And as always, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Final Third Show. Give us a follow there. We are at 70 followers on Twitter. And I don't know, it's pretty exciting. It's pretty exciting indeed. And let's get started with the show.
1: Hello and welcome back to another News and Predictions episode of The Final Third. I'm Jack. I am a Chelsea fan, Atalanta fan, Minnesota United, and French national team fan. And as always, I'm joined uh, by AJ. Yep,
0: I'm AJ. AJ Tabura. I'm a fan of Minnesota United, West Ham United, unfortunately, and the U.S. national teams. And we have an amazing show for you guys today, as always, the way that we format this, this uh, news and prediction episode that we release every Monday is we go through the five big stories either on or off the field in the soccer world. And we go into going Jack in time where Jack goes over some very historical events that not only were big at the time, but also have repercussions happening to this day We we go over the U S men's national team corner, where we cover the biggest big stories and U.S. men's national team news. let we go over predictions, both last week's, the five big games that happened last week, and the big games that are happening this upcoming week. Before we begin, I wanted to give a shout out. The people who listen to us on Podcast Addict, I didn't know that this was an app that existed until we found out that it's one of our highest traffic sources for, uh, for listenership. So if you're listening on Podcast Addict, Thank you! Big shouts out to you, and because we shouted you guys out, I think that that makes it so we deserve a rating and a follow for, from you guys. You know that'd be really cool. And you know if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever, leave a review, and you know not just leave a review. I and mean, we have a lot of five star reviews, but leave like an actual like like review with like a paragraph about how much you like the show. If you do that, if you leave a five star review with with a paragraph explaining why you, you, you like the, the show so much, either on Podcast Addict or Apple Podcasts. You know, I think, Jack, will you agree? We'll read you guys out. We'll give you a shout-out. We'll pick one, and we'll give you a shout-out. How about oh, that, abso- Jack? What do you think?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, going off of this thing, I'd also like to say, you know, thank you, everyone, for 70 followers on Twitter we yes. reached this week. And we passed 400 total downloads, Whoa. which is Awesome. Uh thank you all so much. Uh but you know, that's enough uh waffling on uh yes. you know all of this. You you guys are here for the content that we provide, I hope. Hopefully. Uh, yeah. And let's get right into that. AJ, why don't you kick it off with the first big story on some potentially groundbreaking news in Europe?
0: Yes. So we have the Beneliga and the Beneliga, well, it's short for Belgium, Netherlands, league i suppose and a lot of this analysis that i'm going to uh, bring up comes from u slash l ec from r slash soccer he did a, a a nice deep dive post into the beneliga uh so if you guys want to look and find some more information go check that out it's a post on r slash soccer and so what is the beneliga well it's the proposed soccer league super league that combines the dutch and Belgian professional soccer leagues it is the 25 professional belgian teams have recently voted to explore the possibility of the merger and this league would be the 10 Eredivisie teams uh, the likes of Ajax, PSV, Feyenoord, AZ, Utrecht, Vitesse and eight belgian pro league teams like Club Bruges, Anderlecht, Standard Liège, Gent, Genk, and Royal Antwerp and the teams who aren't included in the Beneliga will be put into the second division of their respective countries. Now, there may be a combined domestic cup as well. And this league would start in 2025. And if studies done prove that it's a good idea and the clubs, federations, UEFA, and FIFA sign off on it, we might be seeing a combined league between two countries starting in 2025. So why do it? What are the pros of actually combining two leagues? It's, it's a kind of a, a crazy idea, especially in the 21st century. Well, the first and the biggest is probably the TV deal. It's hard to compete with the Bundesliga, Premier League, Serie A, and La Liga. Belgium and Holland's TV deal is minuscule compared to the big four. It makes it harder for the teams to compete with the big leagues both on and off the field. The proposed league's TV deal can go up to 400 million euros, much higher than the 180 million euros the Eredivisie and the Pro League are racking up respectively. They predict that... The overall revenue can rise up to over 1 billion euros annually. It can also increase the competitiveness of the leagues. More money equals more investment. More high level competition equals the league as a whole gets better. Instead of Ajax having to play the likes of, I don't know, VVV Venlo, who they beat 13 0 earlier this season, they can now face stronger competition like Club Rouge. That makes them better. And lastly, it can also get more fans, both domestic and internationally, interested in the league, which is important for teams' market outreach and their stadium atmosphere. So what are the cons? Well, it's a lot of fan disapproval. So many fans of smaller and big teams alike have revolted and will say that they'll stop supporting the league. Even big club fans who will actually benefit from joining a Super League like this, like Ajax, PSV, and Anderlecht are complaining. The competition will lose its history and charm, which is true. And the second point, what happens to Sparta Rotterdam? What happens to Serkil Bruges? What happens to the other smaller clubs who can't survive in the second divisions without going bankrupt? It'll hurt the smaller clubs, which hurts the pyramid in the long term, which jeopardizes the future of Dutch and Belgian football. You need the lower leagues, and Beneligo will put those leagues in jeopardy. And there's also the fact that the, pro, these, that the pros aren't guaranteed. They could get more money. They could get more competitive. They could get more fans. But will they? Who knows? And the big picture conclusion I'll say before I let Jack talk is with the rumors of a UEFA Super League and an MLS slash MX merger, many people will be watching this development closely. If this goes through and it works, the future of club soccer may change forever. We might actually have MLS and League MX trying to merge. We might have a UEFA Super League merge if they can see that fans won't revolt and that the TV deal will actually increase. In my mind, I don't want that. I want federations to invest in the lower leagues and work to strengthen their leagues from the top down instead of just chasing the money. Now, Jack, what do you think about this Beneliga idea between Belgium and the Netherlands? Do you think it's actually a good idea? And what do you think is going to happen?
1: Well, I'm not sure if it's the greatest idea just because the research isn't there yet. And also, I I don't know. I think that these leagues are stronger by themselves. The TV deal... You know, it can be beneficial for the clubs and maybe the owners as well. But ultimately, I'm not sure if it's the best for sporting merit because, you know, you're you're just going to create like, a, you know, a, like you said, a big disparity between first and second divisions. And, you know, it could kill off a lot of those smaller clubs, which is not what we want to see happening, especially after, you know, the coronavirus pandemic has hurt a lot of those smaller teams so much. We, we want to make, make sure that they run for longer and not going, going extinct or anything. So I, I think that it could be interesting. But, you know, given that there's not a ton of research yet, I'll wait to see uh, to make a final opinion on it, I guess.
0: All right. And with that, let's go on to our next big story. And that's Eden Hazard suffering another injury, missing so much time from Real Madrid. Jack, why don't you take that one away?
1: yeah well in hazard uh you know i'm a chelsea fan he's a chelsea legend so i have a lot of respect for him i it hurts to see all the injury problems he's had since joining real madrid he has missed over a year of first team football since joining the spanish giants he's only been there for a year and a half he has been restricted to 16 La Liga appearances in his first season and in total he's only made 25 appearances. In in uh in when he was at Chelsea he only missed 8 games total, but he's had a muscle injury uh and it looks like, you know, Real Madrid are just monitoring it, but it's looking like he might be considering doing a third ankle surgery, which uh you know could be could rule him out of the euros and he's a huge player for belgium and you know especially if they want to capitalize on a strong world cup run from 2018 uh it it would be tough to lose eden hazard uh, and have him ruled out and some some tabloids i i'm not going to i'm not going to say they're super credible or that they they are very credible because they are at the end of the day tabloids have said that some doctors are saying that if he does go through with this it could lead to an early retirement, which I don't want to see certainly, uh, because he was a special player for Chelsea, and mm-hmm. I I would hate to see a club let I a club legend, and I do say club legend, uh, for someone like Eden Hazard, uh, have to retire at the age of thirty when he mm-hmm. has when he's done so much, uh, but you know it's it, it's a tough strain uh, for him because Real Madrid was supposed to be his dream move, but. With these injury concerns, it's just looking like a, a nightmare move at this point, and I feel pretty bad for him and hope that nothing goes too wrong if he does decide to get a surgery like that. So AJ, you're not you're not a Chelsea fan, but what what are you thinking about Eden Hazard's injury concerns?
0: I'm not a Chelsea fan, I'm not a Real Madrid fan, I'm not a Belgium fan. However, I have to say that a player who could have reached the, the the greatness that Real Madrid exudes and further it even more. To, to crash out like this is very unfortunate. I wouldn't want this for anybody. I wanted to see him do well with Real Madrid. I wanted to see you know some really big competition going on in La Liga. So to see this is really disheartening. I really hope he gets back on his feet, even if he doesn't you know, go back to playing the way that he used to, to just have a real, really positive season once more would be great to see. But, you know, from that sad news to some actually really, really happy news, we have a story about a player that's just getting started. That's Jose Gallegos, 19-year-old midfielder for San Antonio FC of the USL Championship, America's Second Division, because we're going to talk about him because he's going on a two-week trial with Bayern Munich with an option for a transfer at the end of it. Gallegos, who was a 2020 USL Young Player of the Year finalist, played great and has attracted many suitors both in MLS and Europe. He's got a great technical skill, vision, and engine, and he'll do great wherever he lands. But his overall skill is not what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is what this means for MLS, USL, and American soccer as a whole. Because this could be huge. Not just for Gallegos, but the other organizations that I mentioned. The U.S. Celta MLS pipeline is rarely explored, and the U.S. Elta Europe pipeline is also not as strong. But both are actually beginning to emerge. We have players, you know, moving from USL to MLS, maybe not in a, a huge superstar role, but it's happening. And we've had some younger players moving from USL to the minor European leagues, like Scotland and other leagues like that. But to see a oh, two-weeks training stint with Bayern Munich is pretty huge. And while that training stint doesn't mean much, it does signal that big clubs like Bayern Munich are identifying actual talents in America, even in the lower leagues. And so the big picture idea that people need to look out for in the long term is if we can get more MLS and European clubs transferring players in from USL Championship, USL League One, NISA, what have you, the second division will become stronger. And in turn, American soccer will too. Whether it's an MLS club like LA Galaxy or a European club like Bayern Munich, buying players from the second division can only help us in the long run. I think it's pretty interesting. Jack, I'm guessing you haven't seen a lot of San Antonio FC, but what do you think about a move like this?
1: Well, you know, we were just talking last week in our deep dive episode about how to grow U.S. soccer, and uh, our guest, Jordan of the a uh, stateside soccer show and stoppage time soccer show talked about sort of a plan about strengthening uh player sales from the U S to Europe. And, you know, if stuff like this continues to happen, then we're going to see the U S get a lot stronger, a lot quicker and be seen as, you know, a lot, a lot of people in, in Europe and uh, so-called Euro snobs who only watch European leagues, who call the MLS a retirement league they might be taking a second look uh, with this. And I think that that is something extremely valuable. And, you know, I I would love to see this kind of transfer go through. And even if the transfer doesn't go through, getting a trial with Bayern Munich is a pretty big deal and still shows that even if they don't sign him, there still was enough talent seen there to give him a trial, which is important.
0: All right. And with that, Jack, Why don't you go on to another really exciting piece of news, the UEFA Champions League quarterfinals being set.
1: Yeah, so the quarterfinals have been set in place. Uh, We're looking at some really exciting matchups coming up. So I'll just go from the top of the bracket down, starting with, uh, you know, perhaps the most mouthwatering match of them all, which is PSG versus Bayern Munich last year's final in the quarterfinals. That's going to be a huge one to watch. Uh, It's going to be interesting to see it play out over two legs, uh, see if, you know, PSG have learned anything from their first time facing Bayern Munich, and uh, I think that's going to be a really thrilling game. And then you have Manchester City versus Borussia Dortmund, which is very interesting given that the links between Manchester City and, uh, well, Manchester City signing Erling Holland this summer have grown stronger in recent weeks, so... Uh, that could be a really interesting one, uh, and you know, I I think it's going to be interesting because Jaden Sancho was a former Manchester City player who left uh, the the team for Dortmund to get more playing time, and uh, I think it's going to be a really interesting matchup to see if one of the best defenses in Europe can keep down Erling Holland, who has 21 yes. goals in 21 games this season. Uh, in the Bundesliga, so that that's going to be a fun one, and then uh, out of that we'll uh, we'll get the first semifinal, which any of those matchups would be really interesting to see. So I I'm looking forward to that. But then we go down to semifinal or quarterfinal three, which is Liverpool versus Real Madrid. That's right. We don't have just one of the past three years' finals into in in uh, this year's, but we have two of them. Uh, mm-hmm. This one's going to be interesting. We'll see if Sergio Ramos breaks another one of Mo Salah's limbs. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see if, uh, you know, Loris Karius really was the problem for Liverpool. Or if, you know, getting a keeper really helps them and challenges Real Madrid. And both of these teams are going through intense injury issues at this point in time, like we just mentioned with Eden Hazard and like we've dunked on Liverpool for in the past. Uh, but that that's going to be a fun one to watch and then finally we have the one that i'm most excited for because of bias chelsea versus porto i've seen i saw jokes all over twitter that you know chelsea outbid man city for the easy draw but porto are Hmm. no pushovers they beat juventus at uh over two legs they beat them at home and you know they their free kicks are incredible but this one's going to be a really interesting one to watch. See if Thomas Tuchel can keep an unbeaten streak intact, and I'm looking forward to that one. Uh, I think you know I'm not. I I don't think Chelsea will underestimate Porto, but it's going to be a fun one to watch. AJ, are there any one of those that you're really looking forward to watching?
0: I'm obviously looking forward to Bayern Munich versus PSG. I think that's going to be the one that catches people's eyes the most. You know, I will say the one that I think is going to be a sneakily exciting one is going to have to be Manchester City versus Borussia Dortmund. I think, I think Borussia Dortmund, you know, their management and their players know that the Bundesliga is out of control, so they're going to want to put all their stock into the Champions League, see if they can go as far as possible. And Manchester City, they're looking at this like they want to get the quadru- quadruple. So they're going to do everything they can to win this matchup so they can get to that point where they can make history winning the quadruple. So we have two teams that are just going to put everything on the line for this quarterfinal. I think that's the one that people should look out for. I think that's the one that I'm going to be watching most intently. Another l- l- less than happy one, I suppose. And that is Slavia Prague fans, after or during the Europa League tie during Rangers, unveiled a terrible racist banner towards Glenn Camara of Rangers. And Glenn Kamara uh, is a black man. And the poster that they unveiled called him the N-word. And I believe this stems from an alleged assault charge against Glenn Kamara. Slavia Prague, who were playing Rangers in the round of, was it the round of 32? No, Grand, round of 16, round of 16 yep. in the Europa League. Uh, after the game, Slavia Prague reports that Kamara attacked Kudela of uh, Slavia Prague in the tunnels, and are attempting to take him to court. When fans learned about this, I believe that's why they made the banner. And Kamara has come out and said that Kudela is lying about the assault, and said that he called him, amongst other words, quote, a monkey, and that's what caused him to strike back. And you know, what's really hard is that there was a video of a Rangers manager, Steven Gerrard, having to comfort Kamara on the field through this, with Kamara crying into Gerard's shoulder because he came to him and said that he just got racially abused. And there's still a lot going on here, still a lot at play, but just for the allegations to be out there, just for the, we know that the fans had a terrible, terrible poster, just super racist. You know, overall, racism has no place in this game. I don't think Kamara would lie about something as terrible as that. I surely know that Slavia Prague fans have not covered themselves in glory. West Ham likes to associate themselves with Slavia Prague due to us getting two really good players from them. But to see this actions, I, I, mean, I don't like Slavia Prague anymore. It's good that the club has denounced uh, their own fans for being racist, but now they put themselves in a really bad spot PR-wise. And the hope is that this can be resolved and the wrongdoers, whoever they are, Kudela or the uh, fans to be put to justice. Jack, real quick, I mean, what do you think about this? Yeah,
1: well, I think the most disappointing thing about it is uh, I was looking at Instagram after this and you know, instead of the fan group that posted it admitting like, "Hey, we did something really terrible and we should take it down." They did take it down, but then they said, "Actually, we only took it down because Instagram was trying to censor it." Here's a different site you can go to 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 see the picture. Yeah. which is just terrible. Like if, if it, I, I, it was terrible in the first place, but that just makes it even worse because they know that they're doing something wrong that violates like some some basic respect, but yet they continue to do it anyway, and that and that's mm-hmm. just terrible, and it's really disappointing to see. I, I, I'm just really upset with that one.
0: Yes, I am gonna have to agree, and with that, those are our, our five big stories. Let's move on to some, two real quick stories. Again, another not so happy one. And that's David Dobrik, a popular YouTuber. Some of you guys might know him. He's also a co-owner of Angel City FC, the LA expansion team for the NWSL. Well, we talk about him because he's been kicked out after allegations of sexual assault came to light. A lot of supporters groups for Angel City FC are angry because the team statement of him leaving was so short. It was so unsubstantive. For a woman's soccer team trying to build a culture of inclusion, to come to the first instance, the very first instance, where they can actually show that they're serious about this culture and not just using it for profit, to completely drop the ball is disgusting. But to see this in your own backyard for a team that has expressed that they want to be inclusive, oh, you know, this is this is just terrible for them to not do enough to you know to support women. During you know this this terrible uh, thing that David Dobrik d- did, and to really try to reiterate that they're so about being inclusive, they're so about being a safe space for all people, that they would kick out Dobrik for doing this is you know them dropping the ball and pretty disappointing. And you know, I hope they make a more, more concerted effort in the uh, future to display the inclusion that they advertise. I got nothing else to say about that, so Jack, why don't you take us to Going Jack in Time, where Jack's going to talk about some things in history that were pretty big back then and still bring huge repercussions in the future.
1: Yeah, so in this episode, we've talked a lot about racism and uh, other, uh, other unsavory topics, so why don't we dive right into that and talk about uh, the era of fascism and Italian football and how Mussolini defiled the beautiful game in order to promote such a dangerous ideology. So if you've been on TikTok recently, you may have seen the trending sound, which Minecraft player are you, with those types being the builder, the fighter, Steve, and in between there, the racist. I've seen that trend applied to European leagues, and the only constant I've seen was labeling Serie A as the racist. Given its history with racial abuse leveled by fans and players, it's not really a wonder why. However, I think this goes a step further, so let's examine the roots of fascism in Italian calcio, or soccer, and how Mussolini intertwined club football and fascism into a legacy it's still trying to escape. While Mussolini consolidated his power in 1924, when the fascist opposition walked out of parliament to try and force Mussolini from power, before his consolidation his desire was clear, to create a united fascist National identity, where there were no longer regional identities, with Mussolini pursuing a "quote-unquote" superior Italian nationality. After consolidating his power, he realized that the greatest propaganda machine he could have imagined was already a staple in Italy: the sport of soccer. The fascist regime sought to reimagine soccer to reflect their ideology. The uh, Mussolini himself actually took complete control over the Italian Football Federation, the FIGC. With Mussolini making all of these decisions instead of clubs getting a vote on decisions, he had all the power. One of the first changes he ended up making was to consolidate the Italian league, which was to get. Uh, and this per this served a purpose of getting rid of the nat of the regional identities that preceded his ideal league, Napoli with their Neapolitan cultural identity were brought into the National League in an attempt to erode their regional culture. Similarly, Palermo and Cantania were brought in to erode Sicilian identities. However, this wasn't really successful, because regional rivalries played a huge part in keeping regionality. Because when Juventus and Napoli played each other, a Juventus fan, if Napoli scored at the last minute, a last-minute winner, wasn't, ah, yes, I love the sport of soccer, it makes me so proud to be an Italian. It was, God, I really hate that Neapolitan club. So that, that wasn't a success. But what was called a success, although it's debatable whether or not you can call it one, foreign players were banned from competing in this National League setup, another example of fascist xenophobia. And this rule was celebrated because Italy won the 1934 and 38 World Cup wins. And Mussolini used this as a display of Italian... Quote, biological superiority the truth however is far more complex though as most of Itali- italy's winning squads were full of first generation italian immigrants which flies in the face of everything fascism believes in however these haven't re- these didn't really last past uh, the fall of mussolini in 1943 the longest lasting legacy though of mussolini's hijacking of italian football can be found in infrastructure the stadiums used by different teams. While the spike in stadia building in the late 1920s was largely a result of Italy's pending hosting of the 1934 World Cup, the stadiums were built as a way to bombard populations with fascist and hyper-nationalist propaganda. Because populations flooded to these stadiums on match days, before the game, the crowd would be bombarded with fascist liturgy, anthems, salutes, and at times... Even appearances of Mussolini himself, giving off racist and xenophobic rhetoric, which heavily influenced the, the crowds. It wasn't just the propaganda potential, though, that links these stadiums to fascism, but their architecture as well. If you look at a lot of these stadiums, they were built with classic Roman architecture in mind, using white or cheaper white materials to resemble classic Italian marble. And many of these stadiums are still in use today with Bologna's Stadio Littorale, Fiorentina's Stadio Artemio Franchi, and Torino's Stadio Olimpico Gran Torino. The use of these stadiums serve as a permanent reminder of the time when fascism took control of the beautiful game to spew hateful rhetoric. While fascism officially ended control of Italian football in 1943, remnants still persist to this day. Some fringe supporter groups express, express great praise for Mussolini, such as some of Lazio and Juventus's ultras. The xenophobia and racism experienced by players and fans, by other players, such as Moise Keane playing, in, uh, playing for Juventus in 2019 when they played against Cagliari, and so many others, is inherently linked to the fascist control of football and shows the connection to Mussolini's fascism in the sport is not just in the stadium architecture, but, unfortunately, embedded in the culture as well. Until we can get rid of, uh, until we can rid the football pitch of racism, Italian soccer will unfortunately continue to be stained by this fascist ideology. And that's what that means for the game today. But if you really enjoyed this story and want to learn more, uh, as always, most of the stories I tell are based off of books that I've read and I'd highly recommend checking out Simon Martin's 2004 book Football and Fascism, The National Game under Mussolini. It's where I got most of this information from and along with some other research, but it was incredibly interesting to read about and I'd highly recommend it. So uh, that was going Jack in
0: time. Nice. Thank you, Jack. And with that, let's go back to the present to talk about the U.S. men's national team. In the U.S. men's national team corner, we're revamping it a little bit. We're not going to go line by line to talk about all the things that happened with uh, U.S. soccer in Europe and you know at home. Instead, so we're going to talk about some big picture things that we should know about about the U.S. men's national team. So instead of like a million different topics, we get it down to three, and we really get into it. And the first one of these, well, before we get to that one, I want to mention we do have an announcement for a game against Switzerland this May before the CONCACAF Nations League. That's not really big news. The thing I did want to talk about was the March roster review. We got the March friendlies coming up Jamaica this Thursday, March 25th, and Northern Ireland Sunday, March 28th. We have the rosters for them. And there had to be some restrictions due to COVID. Places like Germany restrict travel based on how at risk a country is. So many players had to either miss the friendlies or can only play in the Jamaica game because it's in Austria and that's, I don't know, considered safer for some countries like Germany or France. So some notable names on the roster that I want to mention were the likes of Zach Steffen from Manchester City, John Brooks, Reggie Cannon, Sergino Dest, who scored a brace for Barcelona today. Uh, Aaron Long, coming all the way from America to join them for the friendlies. Brian Reynolds, his first ever call-up. Chris Richards, Anthony Robinson. Then we have in the midfields, we have Brennan Aronson. Kellen Acosta, also coming from MLS. Sebastian Legette, same story. Eunice Musa, who just uh, committed to us. Owen Otisowi of Wolverhampton Wanderers. And then for the forwards, Daryl DK, Christian Pulisic, and Gio Reyna. Josh Sargent, Jordan Abachu, who just also committed to us. The big storylines into these friendlies, it's all about seeing how players gel and how they fill out the roster. You know, it's sad that we don't see McKenny or Adams, but this means our forced choice lineup still won't play against, like, with each other. And yes, that means that we're going to lack chemistry going into the summer, but here's the thing. It's unlikely that we're ever going to see a perfect forced choice starting 11 due to injuries or other unforeseen circumstances. So we need to prepare our bench to be the best it could be. It's not something that it, to be sad about because literally every country goes through this. Like, Jack, does the French team play their strongest eleven every single game? No, definitely not. Exactly. This is the first time we're going to see Gio Reyna and Pulisic on the same field. You know, that's positive, but we're not going to see them together all the time. But, you know, going you know, from that, you know we do have Gio Reyna and Pulisic playing on the same field at the same time. That's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how they build off each other, especially if we end up seeing Pulisic on the left and Gio Reyna on the right. Pulisic has been regaining form, getting assists against Atletico Madrid in the Champions League and getting man of the match against Sheffield United in the FA Cup. Gio Reyna has struggled with injury and has been out of form, so it's going to be interesting to see if this could be a chance for them to really build some momentum going into the rest of the season. And with McKennie and Adams gone, the question becomes, who steps up in the middle three? We need a strong core of at least seven to eight players who we can call upon to fill out the three central midfielder spots. So who's going to step up to take up in their absence? I'm excited to see Brendan Aronson, who scored three goals and two assists in the Austrian Bundesliga this season, as well as Sebastian Leggett. Yunus Musa, the Valencia midfielder that just committed to the USA, and Owen Otisowi, uh, who hasn't seen this, this field as much, but has a lot of upside, are also going to be interesting to look at. This camp might be the chance for them to cement themselves as being part of the top seven midfielders in our pool. And hey, we'll need all of them in the World Cup qualifying. This is their chance to build some chemistry and familiarity. Uh, And the striker battle is also going to be crazy. This is the thing to look out for in this camp, I think. This is the chance to see maybe the three best European strikers in the pool right now. We have Daryl DK, Barnsley FC in the EFL Championship. He scored five goals for them in the past eight matches. Josh Sargent, a Werder Bremen in the Bundesliga, went on a three-game scoring streak. Impressive, although he did score an own goal this weekend. And Jordan Ciabattu, new to the pool because he's a dual national French-American that just committed to the USA. He's 24 and playing for young boys in the Swiss Super League. 10 goals in the last 24 matches. And, you know, he might be the one to step up to be our nine. But the question is, who is going to step up and become our nine? Sergeant DK, or Ciabattu? I think they all get time, but it's going to be an interesting battle to say the least. And next, we have the Olympics. So in the USMNT U23s beat Costa Rican U23s 1-0 to last week, putting us in second place and in a very strong place to get out the group. So as long as we take on uh, the business against Dominican Republic, which, you know, we're actually recording this after the fact, we beat Dominican Republic 4-0 to with goals from Jackson Ewell, uh, Hassani Dotson, and Jordi Mahalevich. And you know, reminder: in order to qualify for the Olympics for the first time since 2008, we have to get top two in the group and then win the semifinals. The final doesn't really matter. Both these games, uh, the entirety of Costa Rica and the beginning half of uh, the game against Dominican Republic were pretty sloppy. With with Costa Rica, it might you can put it up to them not having a lot of experience with each other, but to me, the first half we just did not have the right people for the job against Dominican Republic. We had a very conservative midfield with Perea, uh, Ewell, and Cardoso being the midfield three. Not a lot of creativity. For both these, we lined up 4-3-3. I'd implore anybody who wants to learn more about the lineups to look that up. And, you know, MLS is out of season, so many players haven't played a competitive game since the fall. And just couple of the extreme heat of Guadalajara, that makes it difficult for any team to succeed. So when you pair this with, you know, some lack of creativity in the midfield, it becomes very hard to score goals and really get stuff going. In the first game, we had Ochoa uh, playing really well, and he really cleaned up after Glad and Pineda's mess. Overall, in the past couple of games, the the good things I've seen were Sam Vines' passing, Lewis' runs into the box, Jackson Ewell's positioning that he created for the center backs, Ochoa's nine saves, obviously, Ferreira's goal, Dotson's ball-winning ability to and his ability to beat people on pace, as well as his good runs and ability to score, and the creativity that Mahalovic and Johnny Cardoso can bring if you get it out of them. The bad things that I've seen was Vines' inability to track back because he's slow, Mihaljevic being more or less invisible when he's trying to be a creative eight, Our CBs in the first game, Pineda and Glad's inability to pass out of the back without giving the ball away, Michelle and Herrera's obviously terrible right wing and right back partnership, and Jesus Ferrer's scuffed chances. He should have scored three in the first game. And many people are worried about the lack of polish and our defensive lapses in the back, or lack of clinical finishing in the front. And I would say we should probably calm down here. I tweeted this, but this is our C team in the 90 degree heat, playing after four months of not playing in competitive matches. Don't expect prime Barcelona. Expect us to grind out wins the old American way. The rustiness that's been showing can be worked on through time, but the bottom line is, the first game we won 1-0, the second game we won 4-0. That means our, currently our system is working. We just have to be able to perform the way that we can and pick the players that work the best for it. I think we see more of Ferreira, more of Dotson, more of Kessler instead of Pineda and center back. Cardoso in the midfield, maybe less so. Maybe we see more of Ewell, uh, Tesman, and Mahalovic. Mahalovic on the wing, perhaps. And looking forward, it's imperative that we, you know, at least do sort of well against Mexico. Don't just uh, lean over and die. And, you know, we should be doing that. And, you know, even rest some guys, perhaps, for Mexico, uh, enough so that we can get ready for the semifinal, whoever that's going to be up against. But if, if Mexico can do the deed against Costa Rica and get the win, we will have qualified for that semifinal. There's a lot of excitement with the Olympics. And that's all for the U.S. Men's National Team Corner for this week. Let's jump right in to last week's predictions where we go over last week's big games. Jack, why don't you get us started with Chelsea versus Atletico Madrid in the Champions League and also explain the, the, the scoring system that we have going on here.
1: Yeah, so as always, our scoring system is you get 10 points for getting the result correct, 20 points if you guess the exact scoreline correct, and 0 points if you get nothing right. So starting off with my team, Chelsea versus Atletico Madrid, and this was by far the biggest win of the Thomas Tuchel era in yes. Chelsea. Uh, I mean, Chelsea pretty much dominated this game throughout the entire the entire thing, uh, there were some there were some interesting moments towards the beginning where you know uh, Atletico Madrid could have had some penalty calls as Piluqueta made a bit of an interesting challenge following a short back pass to Mendy but nothing came of it and after a, and Chelsea broke the deadlock after a quick free kick by Atletico ended up falling to Timo Werner who passed it to Kai Havertz. Timo sprinted up the field, got the ball passed back to him, and he crossed it over for Ziyech, who mm-hmm. actually, we found out, has a right foot, which was surprising wow. to me, at least. Uh, and he scored to make it 1-0, uh, coming back from a difficult run for him. And Chelsea held on to that lead. You know, Atletico tried to make a dent in it in the uh, second half, and they were a little bit better in the second half, but ultimately... Uh, The closest they got was a 92nd minute shot from Joao Felix, which Mendy comfortably saved. And immediately following that, a quick counterattack ensued with Emerson taking his first touch off of a Pulisic cross or pass, I suppose is more accurate, and finished with his only touch of the game, scoring a goal. So, (laughs) you know, that's a, that's clinical one touch in the opposition box and uh, one shot on goal and one goal and so it was nice to see Pulisic get an assist and Emerson Mm -hmm. kill off that game Chelsea won it 2-0 and of course I saw the light I knew this 100% trusted in Chelsea I guessed 2-0 getting me 20 points AJ guessed 1-1 which you know it looked like it could have been at a few points Mm -hmm. but ultimately that's zero points and Jordan our guest ended up going the opposite way and went 0-2 to Atletico Madrid for zero points
0: yes i pretty pretty unfortunate by jordan and I. jordan of course was our guest you know part of the the stateside soccer show and the stoppage time soccer show go give him a follow we'll we'll see how he stacks up against us in these predictions you know overall you know i i I think i think this is a pretty good one by you uh as we've stated in the past the guests have always done pretty pretty well but jack's Jack's been on kind of a hot streak, so let's see if he does well with the next one, Real Madrid versus Atalanta. You're still an Atalanta fan, Jack, right? Even though they lost this match, so why don't you take this one?
1: Yeah, so, well, this was not the best version of Atalanta. The best version of Atalanta did not show up. Real Madrid seems to play really well against teams that open up, and not against low-block teams. Real Madrid's scores ended up being Asensio, Ramos from a penalty, and Benzema. And Atalanta had a score from to be fair, a very lovely free kick it was, from Luis it, was. it was it was very well done, super sub strikes again, but ultimately, it wasn't enough. you know, Atalanta had 13 shots and created 10 chances, but Real Madrid were just in control this uh this this game, and uh you know, even though they weren't at the burnabout, it felt like they might as well have been mm-hmm. there with a the full crowd because. This Atalanta team just did not attack from the outset. And it was really disappointing because I expected a lot better from them, uh, especially given the, you know, the pretty minimal damage they, they suffered in the first leg. And I was close to this one, to be fair. I got it the wrong way, but I guessed 1-3 to three for Atalanta for zero points. AJ and Jordan, though, both saw the light. They, I, they were able to see without the rose-tinted glasses of an atalanta fan and they both guessed two to zero not the exact scoreline but good enough for 10 points each
0: all right and the next match was actually a national team match but not a full national team but a youth national team match that's the u.s men's national team u23s versus the costa rican u23s the first game in the group stage of the olympic qualifying that ended 1-0 at the end of the day we got the result our center backs pineda and glad had some terrible giveaways Mihaljevic was invisible, and Michelle and Herrera weren't that convincing as right wing and right back respectively. Ochoa, RSL goalkeeper, made nine saves and came up huge. And Ferreira scuffed two chances, one where he hit the post in a 1v1 with the keeper in the first few minutes, and one where he received a great cross from Hassani Dotson, only to mishandle his first touch and give it away. But a 30-second goal from Jesus Ferreira sealed the win for the USA. It was a match of diving, fake injuries, heat exhaustion, and preseason form. The Costa Rican players were actually in midseason form as the league is going on right as we speak. And, you know, they're well acclimated to the heat. So just the fact that we're able to grind out a win is impressive. Jesus Ferreira had the only goal of the match, to win 1-0. Jack, we all said we thought the U.S. was going to win. Jack said 2-0. Jordan said 2-1. And I saw the light having... Us win 1-0, the exact scoreline for 20 points. Jack, why'd you take Leicester City versus Manchester United?
1: Yeah, so another FA Cup game, which AJ and I both love. We, we love watching FA Cup games. Uh, but let's start by laughing at Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Come on. He forgot that Manchester United were supposed to lose in the semifinals of comp competitions, not the quarterfinals. But all jokes aside, uh, Leicester City seemed more up for the challenge. They were faster, stronger, more clinical, and more comfortable on the ball than United. United's defense seemed to fall asleep several times, letting Iheanacho into the box unmarked and just scoring uh, from headers, from, you know, just one-on-ones. And despite missing Madison, Barnes, and James Justin, some of Leicester's standout players this season, the likes of Ndidi, Tielemans, Soyanchu, and of course Iheanacho, Oh, I always miss this.
0: Oh.
1: Nacho uh, <laughs> yes. stepped up big time. Greenwood did get a consolation goal. He made it 1-1 at the time. But Nacho's brace and a Yuri Tielemans goal led Leicester into the, their first FA Cup semifinal nice. in nearly 30 years to win 3-1. And uh, I I guess 2-1 close for, for 10 points. AJ guessed the opposite of me, 1-2 for United. Uh, he thought he was safe since it was a quarterfinal game for Manchester United, but no such luck. And Jordan saw the light perfectly. Uh, I Guessed Leicester 3 to Manchester United 1 for 20 points. So, AJ, why don't you take it away with our final game uh, that we predicted last week, which was Old Firm, Celtic v Rangers.
0: Yep, Celtic v Rangers' last game in the Scottish Premiership. I don't know if it's their actual last game or the last game before, like the the season gets split up for top half bottom half but regardless this was probably the most lax old firm fans have seen in a very long time usually it's the the old firm rivalry is known for a lot of fighting a lot of intense moments a lot of controversial moments but you know what could have been a goal fest to cap off the 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 beginning of the season or the the first part of the season ended in an anticlimactic 1-1 draw between Celtic and Rangers Many suspect the lack of fans was the reason why this match you know, lacked the intensity that most old-firm derbies are known for. Another reason why this match was anticlimactic can obviously be because Rangers had the season wrapped up well before this game. So there really wasn't anything to blame for. Anyways, uh, Elianusi in the 23rd minute, goal, put Celtic up, but Amorellis goal in the 38th tied this game up to the eventual scoreline of 1-1. One to one. Anyone who watched this match passed... The second half is, uh, I'm I'm so sorry, but Jack, AJ, me, and Jordan all said that you know Celtic was gonna fall, Rangers was gonna win, and unfortunately it didn't go that way. Jack and Jordan both said zero to two. I said zero to one towards Rangers. Ended up being a one-one draw, so we all get zero points, and so this ended up being Jack ending with 40 points, me with 30, and Jordan also with 40 points as well. It brings us to the overall record as Jack being 4, 4, and 3. So, so, you know, just as many wins as losses. Uh, Me being 2 and 8 and 1, just an abysmal record. Absolutely abysmal. Oh, no. And guests as a whole being 2, one and two so jordan was really uh trying to gun for getting the guests as much as much many wins as possible trying to get us get them ahead but unfortunately couldn't do that jack how are you feeling about those predictions and your tie with jordan
1: yeah well i mean i i feel pretty good about it i i was i i wasn't expecting to do this this well this week after the atalanta results yeah uh but you know i recovered and it it ended up working pretty well
0: now so why don't we go on to next week's predictions
1: well now that we've gotten last week's predictions out of the way we have a guest here uh we have paul dolan from uh the persistent infringement podcast on with us and uh paul why don't you introduce yourself and uh you know tell our viewers a little bit about how you got into soccer and your soccer fandom
2: yeah, hi Jack. Hi AJ. It's great to be here on Final Third. I really enjoy your podcast. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm from Persistent Infringement. I've got my own podcast there. Uh, my soccer fandom started growing up. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I played soccer at, in in the town league, um, and the World Cup in 1994 was actually when I was a teenager. So um, I didn't get to go to any of the matches, but I certainly followed it, and it. It made me an even bigger fan. Um, I happened to be in college when MLS started. Nice. And actually, um, I went to the University of North Carolina and Eddie Pope was still a student there when he was a wow. rookie in the first year. And so we followed him, you know, at, at DC United he scored the goal in the first MLS Cup final. And and all of my friends at college, we just kind of got hooked. Um, so I've been, you know, a fan of MLS uh, since the very beginning. I followed the U.S. women's national team. Uh, I, I saw them play in my hometown in 1999 in a high school stadium. It was like wow. crazy, like 2,000 people or something to see Mia Ham and, and the likes. Uh, I've been season ticket holders of three different MLS teams over the years. Uh, now I currently call uh, my favorite teams the U.S. women's national team, the U.S. men's national team, uh, Philadelphia Union, and Sky Blue FC.
0: Nice. Nice. Well, with that, let's go on to our first few games. Uh, we, we, we kind of, this is the first time that we, uh, ever had an episode during the international break. So Paul, this is a, you're, you're a very momentous guest right now. Uh, usually we have a, a variety of different leagues. Now we only had a bit of slim pickings, even though we have some pretty exciting matches. So. But, you know, let's start this off with the U.S. men's national team U23s versus Mexico U23s, the last match of the group stage for Olympic qualifying. You know, Paul, you're our guest. Why don't you get us started with that match? Who do you think is going to take that, if any at all? Maybe they tie. What do you think?
2: (laughs) You know, this is probably the most uh, difficult choice of the week, really, A.J., because we don't know what this game is going to mean. Um, and I, I I, think that most likely uh, both of these teams will have already qualified to the semifinal round. Therefore, I think that we're going to see some heavy rotation and experimentation and some rest. So I'm going with the home team in this one due to the fact that I just think that there might not be that much to play for. I've got it, Mexico 2, U.S., nil. It pains me to say that, but I think it's dosa zero to the hosts.
0: All right, and Jack, casual fan, take it away.
1: Yeah, well, I I as well, I think this is going to be an interesting tie because, you know, like Paul said, we have no idea what this is going to mean. But it's also interesting because we – have like uh, you know a traditional rivalry kind of in CONCACAF which is pretty interesting to see uh, but you know uh, I, I feel like they'll both qualify before this so I'm just going to be inclined to say that Mexico win given home field advantage and also they just have a lot more quality in their team overall because they have more first choice players in their in their U23 squad so I'm i I feel like I'm going to be wrong on this. I'm going to go Mexico win three to two. I, I feel like there's going to be some lax defending in this one, but we're, we're going to go for it.
0: All right. Well, that's, you know, whenever Jack says it's going to be a goal fest, it always ends up being 0-0. Zero, zero. So maybe I should just change my prediction right now to be 0-0 zero, zero in order to get maybe, the points. Maybe. But I didn't do that, to be fair. Uh, I, I did notice that our Costa Rica game – was a bit shaky, but overall, I would say that we played pretty decently. However, when you compare the different squads, like Jack was saying, you have Mexico having, just due to the sheer amount of talent that they keep in their domestic league, they have a stronger squad that they took to the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And I struggle to see them holding back in this game because even though, you know, even though they might have the entire group wrapped up, I still feel like, you know, they, they're going to want to show up the U.S. men's national team. And you, the U.S., on the other hand, let's, let's be honest, they have a, a a C squad for their U23 team that they brought to the Olympics. Against the very good Mexico side in Guadalajara, this just isn't a win for the U.S. men's national team. I'm going to go. I, I also had a Dos Acero as well, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to be a little bit different because now, now I'm thinking about it. I think it might be a little on the conservative side. I'm going to go one to zero for the Mexico U23s. And now we're going to another matchup that we don't really talk about. Uh, we've talked about the U.S. women's national team a lot in the past. We've done predictions for at least two of their recent matches, but we haven't really talked about any you know, club games for the, for the women's side, you know, the NWSL doesn't really start until later on in the spring. Well, Jack and I aren't really big fans of uh, European women's leagues, but for this week, we have done our research and we have looked into the UEFA women's champions league. And so Paul, this is, from what I've seen, this is a pretty, pretty interesting matchup. This is the Barcelona versus Manchester city women's teams, you know, you you probably know this better than us, so why don't you kick it off, and we'll go from there.
2: Well, AJ and Jack, I got to thank you for putting this one on this week because I'm a big fan of the U.S. Women's National Teamers Abroad, and I know that you, uh, you, you've humored me by putting this on, and, and I know you all are big fans of the U.S. Women as well, yeah. so it's a great matchup to watch. I mean, this is, we're talking about the final eight of... Uh, The Champions League, just like at the men's side, but on the women's side. And it's Barcelona this week. It's Barcelona hosting the first leg of the quarterfinal tie against Manchester City. And let me just let me just set the stage here a little bit. Don't forget on Man City. We've got um, we've got Sam Mewis and Abby Dahlkemper who are regular starters. And then we've got Rose Lavelle coming off the bench. Now, when I first heard this, I said to myself, in what team club team in the world would Rose Lavelle come off the bench? Yeah, And I got to tell you, it still baffles me a little bit, but Man City's a darn good team and they have a lot of good players. So as more of you watch of them, you're like, well, this is a really tough team to get into and you got to bring it every time. Uh, Now, when we talk about Champions League, so City's gone out to Spanish opposition the last two years in the knockouts of the Mm -hmm. Champions League, both times to Atletico Madrid. Um, So you already know it's going to be a tough matchup. City is fighting with Chelsea for the top spot in the FA Women's Super League. So they're fighting on two fronts now. Now contrast that with Barcelona, who are 20-0-0 in the Spanish league this year, with a goal differential of plus 96. They have (laughs) scored 99 goals and conceded only three in the league. So they're up by 10 points in the league with three games in hand. So they are not contesting on two fronts. They've already sewn up Spain. They are focused on, you know, primarily on the Champions League. And they are loaded at Barcelona. They've got um, internationals uh, like uh, Jenny Hermoso from Spain, uh, Lika Martens from the Netherlands, Carolyn Graham Hansen from Norway, all goal scorers. You don't know which one's going to pop up into a hat trick at any time. I, I think that Muis and Dahlkemper will get the start here. I think Roosevelt will come off the bench. I'm going to be pulling for our Americans over there. But given the dominance of Barcelona and the fact that Man City has crashed out to uh, to Spanish opposition, I think it's going to take City a return leg at home to have any chance in it. So I'm actually calling Barcelona three, Man City one in this first leg.
0: All right. That's you know that is a lot of lot of insight. You know, doing my research, I I, I learned a, a lot of things about both these teams, including Barcelona's dominance. But I, I will wait my turn to talk about this interesting matchup, and I'll give it to you know Jack, who I, I guess would be happy that Chelsea are leading the 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 women's league over up in England. So Jack, what do you think about Barcelona versus City?
1: Yeah, well, I, I already knew they were leading it because I, I do watch – I watch the FA Women's Super League from time to time because Chelsea have an amazing squad. But we're not talking about Chelsea in this instance. We're talking about Barcelona and Manchester City. They both performed impressively in their round of 16 matches. Barcelona won 9 And, you know, uh, like Paul said, these are both excellent teams who have great records. They both have been keeping clean sheets recently. Uh, City have only conceded 11 goals in 17 games in the league, and Barcelona conceding three in 20 games, which is incredible. Uh, But given given the record of these two sides, and because City is a little bit more vulnerable right now than Barcelona because they have to compete in a lot more competitions, well, double technically, which is... Just one more, but, uh, and because Barcelona are at home, I'm, I'm going to go with a similar scoreline to Paul, but I'm going to go with two to one to Barcelona on this one.
0: All right. All right. Well, I, I also went with two, one, but I'm going to change that because I, <laughs> because I, I, I'm sick and tired of, uh, tying with people, of uh, because we have the same results. So I, I'm going to go, I'm gonna go with four, one, I'm going to go with four, one, four, one okay. I, I think, so, so, so Jack went 2 one Paul one, three, one, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Barcelona really go for it. And I can I kind of believe that because I think once you get to the level of dominance that Barcelona has over their league, you know, it gets to the point where there's just like, I, like it's completely unprecedented, at least in the men's game to have just so much dominance that you can focus almost a hundred percent of your time on this premier, uh, Champions League level of competition. And I know doubting Sam Uless is probably gonna come back and bite me after he, she performed very, very well in the last round against Fiorentina, but Barcelona just seemed too good. So I'm gonna go with that 4-1 scoreline. But you know, with that, you know, let's move on to another national team game, and that is France versus Ukraine. And anyone who has listened to this podcast knows that Jack's actually not a us men's national team fan first he's a french fan first he's had a lot of experience with french culture and now they're taking on ukraine in the world cup qualifying uh uh, group stage jack do you think france will take the win over ukraine and get them the three points
1: well Of course, like AJ said, this is my favorite team. It's the team that first got me into soccer. And, you know, they're the world champions right now. But they are squaring off against a side that has recently played quite well with a really impressive squad under Ukrainian legend Andrei Shevchenko. And when these sides met in September for a friendly, France absolutely battered Ukraine 7-1. to However, that was after Shakhtar Donetsk, which comprises about 50% of Ukraine's squad, had a COVID outbreak leading to half of their team not being able to play. They even had to call up uh, one of their retired goalkeepers uh, to be in the squad for that. So they they were having a rough go of it in September. So I'm, I'm fully expecting France to be dominant in this, but they're going to be missing uh, the player whose jersey I'm wearing right now, Kylian Mbappe, because he came off injured against uh in PSG's game against Lyon this weekend and you know that's going to be a big miss but given the attacking depth France have you know they have my favorite striker Olivier Giroud they have Antoine Griezmann they've got uh Ben Yedder performing well they've got all, all of this attacking talent and I'm going to expect them to start their World Cup qualifying on a fine four-one win. I'm saying that they're going to be scored against once because Deschamps insists on putting Clement Langlais in the lineup, it seems. Uh-huh. So I feel like he's gonna do something wrong, like usual. So uh, but I'm 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 backing France to
2: win it.
0: All right. All right. I, you know, this is crazy. I also said four one to France. So I am also going to change that one as well. Why does this keep happening? I, I, I don't know. I, I think, I think we're on the, the same wavelength, Jack, because I, I will say France is a very, very good team. You've picked a very good team to support, uh, but I'm excited to see them play. I did not actually know that Mbappe was not going to be eligible because of injury. Like I, I, I that completely flew under my radar. Uh, but regardless, even with him out, France is still a very, very good team. And Ukraine, at least last year, has not been a good team. They have won only two out of eight games in 2020, including all away games. And plus, like you mentioned, they lost 7-1 to France. However, they aren't pushovers. But at the same time, again, they aren't world beaters either. They have really good players from the likes of you know West Ham and, and Man City, Uh, A lot of it does come from their domestic leagues or other smaller leagues around. But what really does it in for me, the fact that Ukraine is going to be so far from taking this, is the fact that Ukraine hasn't had an away win against uh, a traditional global superpower. So someone that's usually in the, the top 15 ranked for FIFA. They haven't won against a global superpower away in such a long time that when I was doing research for this, I went back to 2005 and the biggest win I could find was uh, probably against the likes of Lithuania or something like that. So the, the fact that the record is just that bad is so telling that this is going to end. I'm going to say I'm going to say four zero. I think it's going to be a nice shutout win for France. Paul, what do you think about France versus Ukraine? Can Ukraine actually win this?
2: I would love to say that they would, <laughs> especially considering that I am half Ukrainian. Oh, wow. Nice. Um, and I've noticed that, Jack, you've got your double dipping here on the Chelsea and France front with Giroud. Yeah. Um And you're really sticking it to me, half Ukrainian, and to AJ with uh, the West Ham United player, Yeah. I <laughs> yeah. So um, I I I've got it a little bit closer, but I've still got France taking it uh, I've got 3-0 to Le Bleu. Um, I'm interested to see if Ndombele steps in, um, perhaps for Mbappe, um, or if we go with a, if they go with a two-forward lineup with uh, Giroud and Griezmann. It'll be interesting to see how things shake out um, for France, but just too strong. And yes, Shevchenko will get Ukraine there, but I don't think on the road against the number two team in the world is where it starts. So I've got 3-0.
0: It's it's a tough ask for any country to go to to France and try to get a, a positive result. So so we'll see who's closest there. But here's maybe a matchup that I think we're also go- might agree on the score line, or at least the result. And that's the US men's national team versus Jamaica, an international friendly on the 25th. You know, Paul, you know, you're you're a US men's national team fan, so why don't you take this one? Explain what you think about you know this friendly that we haven't we haven't had a, a a friendly against uh maybe tougher opponents since i don't know november i suppose so what do you think about this game
2: yeah this will be this will be the biggest test for greg barhalter and the us men um certainly since wales um mm-hmm. you know uh, and and then you would have to go pre covid uh to look to look for something like this so this is really exciting and i think the us is going to have some selection Challenges out there with uh, Weston McKinney is out, Tyler Adams is out, um, and so you know who who's in the engine room, who's in the middle of the midfield, and I, I'm not going to make any predictions, but I think that's a that's something to watch. Now on Jamaica's side, um, you know th- there's a lot of there's a lot of new players in the Jamaican team, and I'm sure you all touch on that. I, I'll just point out that there are some veterans, including Captain Andre Blake, who are who are not called into the team because of a contract dispute between the the players and the Jamaican Football Federation. So you've got no Andre Blake, Damian Lowe, Kamar Lawrence, Alvis Powell. These are are names that you'll notice and you'll recognize if you follow CONCACAF or MLS. So even though the U.S. is missing like two midfield cogs, um, you know, I think Jamaica is sort of like mixing in more um, fresh players and missing some veterans. So I've got the U S with a two nil win. I do think that the U S uh, defense will, will pitch a clean sheet. And then the question, I don't know where the two goals will come from, but, but that's, that's what I'm going okay. with two nil to the U S.
0: All right. That's a fair, fair, uh fair result right there. And Jack, you know, I always, I always give it to you when we have a U.S. team. because I, I always want to get the, uh, someone who's more casually involved with the U S men's national team to give their perspective. So, you know, What do you see in this European matchup? Not European, like Jamaican's not European, but we got the European squad and it's in Austria. What do you think?
1: Well, you know, uh, I think that this is going to be a really interesting one because Jamaica have been doing a lot of recruiting uh, all across uh, Europe and they've found found some good players that are going to be playing for them. Whether or not they'll be ready to go for this one, not sure yet, but you know, I, I think that Jamaica has a solid squad. And, you know, they they've got a few superstars in there, like Leon Bailey, who is an absolute great, like he's a fantastic player. And I, I the US men's national team is going to be missing some key players, like Paul mentioned. Uh Weston McKenney and Tyler Adams are going to be huge misses, but they're also going to have some solid players up front. They're going to have Christian Pulisic, uh Josh. Uh, as I mispronounce it all the time and going and will continue to mispronounce Sargent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, they also have, uh, you know, some great center backs coming in. They've got Zach Stefan, who got a clean sheet in the FA cup before this, you know, a, a ton of us men's national team players are hitting some good form right before the break. And ultimately I think that this game against a CONCACAF rival is going to motivate a lot of them to, continue that good run and come out with a comfortable 3-1 win. I I think there might be some rust given that they haven't played together in about four months or if I'm remembering correctly, but I I think they're going to get a comfortable win here.
0: All right, Jack, you're going to hate me. I also have a 3-1 result. This is, I don't think this has ever happened. So I'm going to change this one too. This (laughs) is, this has, I don't think this has ever happened before where, at least before I changed the result, we've had like the same results over and over again. But <laughs> I think this just speaks to how like in tune we are as podcast co-hosts. But from what I see, with the U.S. Men's National Team having such a powerful squad, I fail to see how they can lose this. And I'm really, I'm really putting myself out there to really get this wrong and have this just blow up in my face. But we're having Gio Reyna and Christian Pulisic on the field for the first time ever, and despite not having Adams and McKenney, we have Eunice Musa coming in. We have the likes of Sebastian Legette and you know, new players where we can really call on to like Brendan Harrison, Owen Otissody, and we have a very powerful back line who you know they have all had pretty positive games this weekend so when you have the likes of those players, you have to admit it's a strong squad and Jamaica's, you know, comparatively, I really like Jamaica's team. I've always uh, cheered for them when the U S weren't playing them, but they just don't have at least a strong squad that they're used to having. And Jack touched on them recruiting a lot of dual nationals, which was a big story about a month ago, but there have been some rumors that the federation might have exaggerated just the pure amount of dual nationals that they were getting. We know for a fact that they are getting one of my favorite players, Mikhail Antonio, who plays for my club, West Ham. But outside of that, those dual nationals are either they contacted them and they're still thinking about it, or they're in the process and it's going to take a little bit, or they flat out it's just not happening. And so you know, with with that out of the way, I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with 3-0. I'm going to go with 3-0. I'm always going one above, I suppose. But uh, just to differentiate myself from Jack, I'm going 3-0 there. And for this next game, Germany versus Iceland, again, World Cup qualifying, I was going to go first because I haven't gone first yet. But I want to see if Jack and I can continue the trend of us having the same stat line. So Jack, why don't you go first and give us your scoreline.
1: Okay, well, uh, Germany was humbled in the Nations League in their final game last year, their final game before this one, losing 6-0 to to Spain, which I maintain is what destroyed Timo Werner's confidence uh, and turned his shooting into, you know, zero, basically. But uh, Iceland ended their Nations League campaign on a similarly sour note, losing 4-0 to England. So both of these teams are looking to bounce back. But ultimately, I just don't think this is Iceland's game. Look, comparing the two squads, Iceland's best player is Gilfi Sigurdsson, who has been quite good for Everton, to be fair. But Germany are calling on an inform form Gundogan. Havertz, Werner, Emre Chan, Manuel Neuer, Joshua Kimmich, Leon Goretzka, one of my favorite players, uh, Robin Gosens, uh, Matthias Ginter, Antonio Rudiger who pocketed Luis Suarez in in the Champions League, Toni Kroos, and I could just keep going on. Uh but I think that Germany are going to do really well in this in this game. It's a home game for them. And I think they're going to start off their World Cup qualifiers by handing Iceland their second uh, consecutive 4-0 defeat. So Germany 4, Iceland 0. I do like Iceland's team though, but I just don't think that this is the game that they're going to Bounce back on.
0: All right. Well, I don't have four zero. I have three zero, and the way that I see it, yeah, unfortunate. This is a story of two teams that have something to prove, and they're gonna wanna prove it in this game. Germany needs to prove that they're still a global soccer powerhouse after getting bounced in the World Cup, losing to Spain six to zero to finish second in their Nations League, uh, group. And losing their current head coach low in the summer, they're going to want to win to start off, like Jack said, the World Cup qualifiers off on the right note. And Iceland needs to prove that their performances at the Euro 2016 and the 2018 World Cup weren't just flashes in the pan after they lost every single game of their nations league games and failed to qualify for the 2020 Euros. So from you know, from amazing heights to some pretty low lows. Iceland wants to get back on that winning train. And I think Germany obviously win this. With Havertz and Werner, I think they will find form again and it will catapult them into success, which is, I guess, what Jack wants to see. And, you know, like Jack said, Goretzka, Gundogan, Kimmich, and other German players continuing their club form, bringing it to the national team, and winning this game. I don't see how Iceland even get a real sniff of a chance here. So I'm going to go with a nice uh, 3-0 win for germany you know, paul how do you feel about this you know take us home what do you think of germany versus iceland
2: well i i echo everything that you have said i i will i'll just point out a couple of things to watch for in this match over and above i think uh germany has not called in uh thomas mueller and you know with Uh, Werner sort of, uh, you know, struggling in his club form right now. I think, you know, it's questionable as to why uh, Yogi Love didn't call in uh, Mueller. But, you know, it's also Jochen Love's final, you know, stretch as Mm -hmm. the manager of Germany. So I do think that the players are going to rally around him through the rest of the Euros. I think they're going to be very dangerous. If I was a France supporter, say, I'd, I'd, I'd be worried about all the talent just across the uh, the border there. Uh, especially, I think the Germans are excited for Jamal Musiala of Bayern Munich uh, to come into the team, the teenager. So he may inspire uh, some of those players that were on the on the losing end to Spain in the Nations League to up their games. Um, I've got... Germany four to one it was four nil but Jack took that so I'll go four uh, one and uh just one other thing I'll point out for MLS fans keep an eye on Iceland's Arnor Trostesen, Yep. uh who uh midfielder who just signed this offseason for New England Revolution so if you're watching this match uh, keep an eye on Trosteson uh because you'll be seeing him line up for Bruce Arena's team this summer in MLS yeah,
0: very exciting for revolution fans who'll be able to see one of their new players, you know before the actual season happens. And with that, those are our five big games that we want to cover during this international break. And you know, Paul, how are you feeling about your predictions so far? Do you think you'll be able to usurp Jack in his hot streak with these predictions?
2: No chance, AJ. I, <laughs> I I already know that I'm I'm going to be letting down all of the guest predictors who came before me. I apologize for that. Uh, you know, the the thing that I always point out on my podcast is I know nothing about anything. So uh, all I can assure you is that most of my predictions will be wrong. But I've really enjoyed uh, being here with you both, and and with any luck, maybe I'll maybe I'll get one past you. But uh, but I wouldn't count on it.
0: All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this prediction section. Again, Paul, thank you for coming. We want we want to plug your podcast as much as possible. We're going to put it down in the show notes. But just to let the viewers know, where can they find you?
2: Yeah, great. Uh, again, my podcast is Persistent Infringement. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at PersistentPod. Um, and please do drop me an email at PersistentInfringementPod at gmail.com. Uh, You know, and I look forward to having you guys on my podcast sometime soon.
0: Yeah, cool. Thank you for coming. That, That sounds awesome.
2: Thank you so much.
0: And that is going to be it for the final third. Jack, do you have anything to say to our listeners?
1: You know, as always, make sure to follow our Twitter and Instagram at final third show. Uh, it's a great time. We've got some great takes going on there. You can interact with us. You can see how our March Madness bracket that we're yes. hosting is going. Uh, spoiler alert: I'm doing terrible. AJ, yes. I'm not sure how you're doing. I, I think terrible. we're actually at the same. Yeah. We're on the same <laughs> points. Uh, but yeah, you know, check it out. It's it's a fun time. We hit 70 followers on there, and uh, you know, give us a rating on all your podcast platforms as well. Uh. But yeah, that, that, that's about it. Just check us out on those socials. Yeah.
0: And if you're listening to us on a podcast platform, which let's face it, you are because you're listening to us right now, give us a follow, give us a rating if you're an Apple Podcasts or perhaps podcast addict. And as always, tell one of your friends to listen to the show, tell your dad even. And we'll see you guys on Thursday for a deep dive episode. And same time, same place for a news and prediction episode next Monday. See ya. Bye for now.